Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. In this episode, Andrew and I had the privilege to talk to Senator Rick Santorum, former presidential candidate from Pennsylvania. He was our keynote speaker at the annual meeting of the Catholic Medical Association held in Dallas, Texas on September 20th to 22nd of this year. I think you will be impressed by the passion that he has for health care, and it's a very personal passion. It basically comes down to the change he saw in the way he viewed the healthcare system because of his youngest daughter, Bella. But first, we'll talk about some medical news with Andrew. Yes, today I actually ran into a new article in the JAMA Pediatric Version, Journal of American Medical Association, that was published just recently here, September 4th, 2018, talking about concussion management in children. And concussions, as we know, have been in the news a great deal lately, especially we're into football season now, so I'm sure uh, we're going to have some more seasonal uptick in talking about concussions. But as a family doctor, one of the calls I get routinely um, over over the evening or on the weekends is that my, my child has fallen and hit their head. I'm afraid they have a concussion. What do I look for? And then the questions I'm asking to myself is how best should we evaluate them to determine if there's any problems going on. So many people think that just hitting your head means concussion. But what does concussion really mean, Andrew? Right. Concussion is an injury to the brain that doesn't lead to any findings necessarily on imaging, but brain damage has been done. So imaging being MRI, CT scan, there, there's nothing you can see. Yes. Usually there's, there's no there's not necessarily something you can see. There might be an, an associated injury like a fracture, a broken bone, um, but from from the concussion standpoint, especially a football player in a helmet who blacks out, they wake up and they vomit, they can't walk in a straight line, they're slurring their words. Usually the imaging there is negative. And so concussion is a brain injury caused by trauma. Very good. And so this article really is directed for physicians, but it, it helps us in identifying what's a useful thing to do and what's not useful in evaluating these patients. And I was, I was happy to read this because it does give some, some insights into things that, you know, many, many doctors, there's a heterogeneous approach to evaluating concussions. A lot of different ways to, to do it. That's right. <laughs> there's a, we, in, in medicine, we're always looking for guidelines, best practices, trying to look and figure out what's the best way of doing something so that we can provide that same care to our patients. And we're finally getting some, some of that advice here. The number one thing that I took away, and really there's a list of about 19 uh, guideline points, the takeaways was, number one, you should really not routinely get imaging. And that I kind of hinted to it earlier, but frequently in the emergency department, people come in, uh, the child fell and hit their head, um, it could be any number of situations. They fell off the table, the football concussion, um, or football head injury. It could be a motor vehicle accident. And so working in the ER, I've worked in the ER before, and you're sitting there and you're trying to figure out, do I need to get a CAT scan of these kids or not? What are the chances I'm missing something more serious even than a concussion, like a brain bleed? Right. Um, and this this study came out and said pretty clearly that if there's no concern for a fracture. You're, you're examining the patient, you're examining their skull, they don't look like they have a skull fracture. You should not do imaging for concussions because it's gonna be negative. And there's a lot of negative things associated with images. Number one would be the radiation exposure. We, we know that radiation exposure is cumulative over the lifetime. It's been estimated that up to 8% of cancers are caused by medical radiation. Wow. So we want to avoid this, especially in children, because those kids are going to carry this radiation exposure throughout their entire lives much higher than chest x-ray. 
And so no imaging is recommended, specifically not CAT scan, which would be performed commonly if somebody went to the ER. And so I, I do think this is going to change the way a lot of ER doctors practice. But an MRI doesn't have radiation, correct? MRI doesn't have radiation, but they also recommend against doing that primarily because the MRIs, there's, there's other things associated, primarily cost and then time. Sure. Um, depending on, on the season around here, there's times when you can't get an MRI in, in Fort Wayne for even a couple of weeks uh, or days unless it's a stat situation you need to jump to the front of the line. And even a concussion would not be one of those. And so they, they recommend against X-ray, CT, uh, spec imaging, S-P-E-C-T, single photon emission computed tomography, um, as well as MRI. And so going against imaging, I think, is very good. The other thing they recommend is mainly discussing with patients, you know, what is the chance a concussion actually occurred? Uh, I had mentioned a few things with that football player example, but if there's vomiting or loss of consciousness, if the mechanism of injury is severe, you know, there's a difference between a child, you know, unfortunately falling off a bed or a table or, you know, being in a car accident or falling off of a horse or a moving vehicle, uh, different severities of injury. If there's no memory loss for the, for the children that can communicate that, um, headache, you know, if, if the, there's commonly a headache, but if it's not worsening, if it's just stable and it's not extremely severe, that's reassuring. Um, we have something called a Glasgow Coma Score, which is something that's used in emergency situations frequently to identify how, how serious neurologic injury is to a patient. If they've got a normal score on that, and there's not any clear damage to the skull, which normally there wouldn't be with a concussion. But if those things are present, then not only no imaging, but just reassuring the patients that over 80% of these um, resolve completely symptom-free within one to three months. And it actually depends on the age of the person. The older you are, the quicker you recover from a concussion. The, the majority of adults would recover from a concussion within even a few days or a week. So many traumatic head injuries without fracture of the skull do not lead to concussions. Did I hear you right saying 80% of those are not? Oh, well, I, would, I wouldn't say that necessarily. If, if there's a fracture, then there's, there's probably... No, if there's not a fracture. If there's not a fracture, we shouldn't image. Right, but how do we know when that head injury is a concussion or not a concussion? Mainly looking at the history, asking the patient about what happened immediately after. Did you lose consciousness, any vomiting, memory loss, um, trouble speaking or walking. Are those all necessary for the diagnosis? Diagnosis would just be based on that cl clinician's opinion. So they, there's not, a, to my knowledge, a unified scoring system that everyone's using. There's several scoring systems out there, but most of them are designed for return to play because even a concussion is not a concussion is not a concussion. You know, one person may have a mild concussion and we want to treat them very cautiously the same as if someone has a severe concussion. So most of the scoring systems are designed to show progress rather than to establish a diagnosis. Thank you. And so the, the main thing to think about is based on the age of the patient. For kids in elementary school, it's really going to take over three months for, for symptoms of the concussion potentially to resolve. High school, it's more about three weeks. And then for adults, it's even a few days or a week. And so treating them with supportive care, avoiding unnecessary exposure to radiation, and then ensuring good follow-up are the biggest things. But I, I was really happy to see that come out of JAMA today. And for people who want more in information, they can look at that Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics Edition from September. Thank you, Andrew. And now on Dr. Doctor, we move along to Andrew's healthcare tip of the day. Yes, today I've, I've got a different type of tip one that is not from the USPSTF. We're actually running out of those. Uh, we have a few left, but I wanted to change it up a little bit today. And this is a general health tip for people who are trying to lose weight. Oh, that's okay. a, a few Americans. So it should be about 86%, according to my last count. Um, <laughs> Americans gain about three to five pounds a year on average. So most of us, at least in a seasonal capacity, are thinking about trying to lose weight on a, on a diet perspective. This is an article from the Journal of Nutrition in 2018, and this, it was a very small study that was done, but folks were randomized into two groups with the goal of being weight loss. One 
was just you go about your daily life as a control group. The other group were instructed to eat protein. Specifically, they were instructed to eat 0.8 grams per kilogram per day of protein, uh, lean protein, namely poultry, that type of thing. So how much chicken does this equate to for the average 70 or 100 kilogram man? <laughs> you know, it usually ends up being about two to three chicken breasts a day. Oh. And so ma- making lean protein kind of your primary meat of, of, of your diet. The second thing they did was they encouraged folks to take 35 grams of fiber per day. Uh, an example of fiber, you know, an apple with skin would be about four grams of fiber. Um, le- lettuce has very little, iceberg lettuce has very little fiber, but whole wheat bread, one piece of that is 1.9 grams. A lot of people supplement fiber with little fiber gummies and <laughs> powder and things of that nature. But for people who did nothing else, no calorie restriction, no exercise, no particular diets, just eat a lot of chicken and take take fiber daily, people lost on average weight without doing anything else. Um, At 12 weeks, the average weight loss was 2.2 kilograms. And so it's something that they were not even intentionally trying to lose weight. They weren't instructed to diet. They were just instructed to eat this differently. And so for people who struggle with dieting or for people who are adverse to, you know, getting a gym membership, sticking to very restricted calories. There's a lot of people who have tried every kind of diet fad out there. This might be one that takes very little intervention, taking a fiber pill a day and using chicken instead of other things, that you're going to see some real weight loss with that. So that's almost five pounds in 12 weeks without trying. That's like the holy grail of weight loss. You know, what can I eat and not have to count calories? Well, and it could be really good because, you know, the average American gains three to five pounds a year. If you end up losing 20 pounds a year just by doing this, I mean, that's a major victory. That's enormous. Well, thank you for that very practical insight. And now to something less practical, the medical trivia question of the day. Category again, like the last show, is physician marriages. Gleaning information from a 2013 article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. This is just a very simple, multiple-choice question. What percentage of physicians spend, on average, less than 90 minutes per day awake with their spouse? Less than 90 minutes per day awake with their spouse. Is it 20, 35, 50, 65, or 80% spend less than 90 minutes per day awake with their spouse? Come back in the last segment of the show to hear the answer. And now we'll take a break before going on to our main interview of the day. This is Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio. We are back today with a special segment. We are blessed in Dallas to be interviewing former Senator, former presidential candidate, Rick Santorum. More importantly, he's a husband, father of seven children, and he has a passion for dignified health care. Senator Semtorum, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you, doctors, and thank you for doing uh, this, uh, this radio program. It's great that you're out there getting this message out. I think the first question that our listeners would like to hear is they're all suffering. You know, the medical system is supposed to reduce their suffering, but they're often suffering because of the medical system. What hope is there for them that this convoluted, labyrinthine, expensive system will become more transparent and patient-friendly? Well, I wish I'd say that, you know, I'm here to present, you know, to deliver great news that, you know, wonderful things are definitely on the way, but uh, that's not the case. I mean, in fact... What, um, what is in store for us, uh, depending on the outcome of this election, is potentially uh, something that looks more and more like European healthcare. Uh, you have uh, the Democratic Party has now pretty much everybody has signed on to, well, not everybody, but certainly all the presidential candidates have signed on to uh, government health care for all, uh, getting rid of the private uh, sector system, which is 150 people who are 150 million people empl- uh, in the employer based system, uh, include, and then, you know, the individual market and every and, and just putting everybody into a government, uh, you know, one size fits all system. And so that that's uh, that's their answer to the mess that they created with Obamacare. And why is that type of system contrary to human dignity? Uh 
Well, it's contrary to human dignity because it's it's based on a system of budgets and it's it's based on a system of allocation of resources and rules and regulations uh, that are dictated and it's not personal, it's not individual, it's not giving people choices to the kind of care they want and, and how they can access that care. And, you know, uh, we are a, uh, as diverse in our health needs and our health wants, you know, it's not just a matter of what our needs are, but how we want to treat those needs, who we want to see. I mean, I'm, you know, whether you want to see a, a homeopathic physician or whether you want to see a traditional doctor or whether you want to, you know, not see a physician at all, but some, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways to, that, that people want to be treated, and, uh, and, and if we have a system that says, no, this is it, and uh, you, you, that's not treating people with dignity and respect. That's not look, respecting their wishes and respecting their, uh, their own way that they would like to care for themselves. And, uh, and so we, we take away that individuality. We treat people as a number, and, and what we get is what we we see which is a system driven by budgetary constraints and and we we get into a situa situation where okay well we have to make sure that things are we have great good utilization and that we we are efficient and that we're not spending money on people like bella santorum who is not economically a, a she's a consumer she's an eater she's a useless eater she's not a she's not someone who who can contribute to that budget that funds everything and therefore uh, we should really think twice about whether we're going to even provide care to somebody like that those decisions are made we, we saw them with charlie guard we saw them with alfie evans and um, you, you know the reason i have decided to stay and get involved in this healthcare debate is because I don't want to be in a position in my life where I have to plead with the judge so my daughter can get care. And that's what's going on in places around the world that have gone for government-run health care that's supposedly fair and equal and everybody gets the same, but nobody gets what they want. You know, Senator Santorum, that, that explanation is beautiful because we experience that frustration on a daily basis in dealing with our patients and not being able to meet their needs. You mentioned your daughter, Bella. Yeah. Can you can you tell us more about how you draw your inspiration from her in staying in this fight? Well, um, it's this is my uh, I'm, I'm here, you know, speaking to the Catholic Medical uh, Association. This is the second time I've spoken to the Catholic Medical Association. But the first time was not to the National Association. It was to a, the chapter in Pittsburgh. Uh, because my uh, father-in-law uh, was a is a physician who was a member of the association, and he was a uh, he was one of the few at the time pro-life geneticists, a very orthodox Catholic geneticist, and uh, working at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and um, and he, you know introduced me into the world of people with disabilities and was very, very active on those fronts and were taught, you know, wrote, wrote extensively about euthanasia and all the other things that were going on. And you know, I thought I knew something uh, about the world of, uh, of people with disabilities, but in all candor, you can't until you live it. And, and as, as much as I, people say to me, oh, I understand what you're going through. And, and I don't mean this in a, in, in a, in a way that, that, that they don't try or sincerely believe they understand. But unless you live it every single hour of every day for years and years as we have been blessed to do, you don't understand. You don't understand uh, all that is involved uh, in, in caring for a child and the demands that that child needs and the struggle you have with the current system, much less a system that is that doesn't value choices and 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 respect the dignity of life the, the to get care my it, my it, wife and i uh on a regular basis i won't say every week but doesn't many weeks don't go by unless we we get a call from someone we just have one just this week of a woman who's calling saying she's pregnant with a child with trisomy 18 her doctor doesn't want to deliver the child. The hospital doesn't want to deliver the child. The, 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 uh, the, the hospital has said that they will not provide care for that child. I mean, these are the fights that you have. And so you say, well, I understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand how there is an attitude in this country of people not respecting the dignity of human life. And, and that is the reason. Is It's bad with the system we have today. But I know from my experience with dealing with the disabled community now for the last 10 years, 
it's far worse in most of these other socialized medicine countries. So is it fair to say that this is an example of God using your circumstances to drive you to a vocation you didn't expect? I, you know, I, I tell people this. I, you know, I ran for president back in 2012 because of, of, of Obamacare and because of my daughter. And uh, it was, a you know, You'd think, well, wait a minute. You ran, you, you left your daughter, and 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 you know you you uh, financially, I I didn't ruin my family, but I you know I went a year without any income. And when you have seven kids, and <laughs> when you go a year without any income, and you spent most of your life in public service, it's not like you have a lot to fall back on. And so you know it was a very very difficult time, but I felt like I had to do it. I had to do something to uh, uh, to stop this uh, this juggernaut of socialized medicine because it was aimed right at the heart of, of my daughter and everybody like her. You know, Senator Santorum, you had mentioned and kind of elucidated the dangers of socialized medicine, especially with the utilitarian worldview. If somebody's on the margins, if they're disabled, if they're poor, they're, they're not worth it. They're a consumer and expense. Right. What, what is your vision for healthcare in America? Well, you know, I, I really do believe that we have to get back and begin the process of devolution, get the, again, bring the process of bringing it back to, to the local level and ultimately to the doctor-patient level. So we've put together a, a plan, and I've been working on this with a, with a large group of folks from the think tank world, from the state level, the federal level, as well as with the Catholic Medical Association and other organizations that really would love to see medicine returned uh, to the doctor-patient relationship. Well, as long as it's in Washington, D.C., and the resources are spent there and the regulations are made there, it is never going to be a doctor-patient relationship. And so the idea is to get, it out, get the, the money out of Washington, D.C., uh, and move it back to the states and put prescriptions in there that, that make sure that they don't set up just another state-run program that does the same thing, government-run program. They have to spend the money in the private sector. Uh, they, and, and if, not all of it, but they have to spend at least half of it in the private sector. If they don't, uh, if they take some of that money and spend it you know, in the public sector, then if you are put in that public sector program, you have a right under our bill to come out of that program and go in and take the cash equivalent value, the actuary equivalent value of that public benefit, and go into the private market and, and get and get a and, uh, and get a policy. The other thing we do is we require the the, uh, the states to spend at least 10% of the money on what's called risk mitigation. That's a very uh, to to the to the untrained ear, that doesn't mean anything. But let me tell you what it means. You have to, the state has to spend 10% of their money taking care of sick people. That they have to take 10% of that money and take the most chronically ill, and it's usually about 10% of the population, and they have to dedicate money to make sure that those people get the care they need and they're not, which is what Obama did, just throw those people into the, into the insurance market and drive up the cost of everybody else. And so we're going to take them out of the insurance market, give them a dedicated source of resources so the state can make sure that those, those people get the care they need, and then let the insurance market work for the rest of, an, of, of, a, of a truly insurable population. If you're guaranteed to be sick and you're going to use a lot of health care, you can't insure that. That's like saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to insure someone who gets in an accident every day. Well, that's an uninsurable risk. And so you have people in our, in our society who are uninsurable risk. And so what you do is you take them out of the insurance pool. You put them in a place where they can get the care they need under a management program that, that, that is necessary. And then let the rest of the marketplace work where you can develop private sector solutions and dynamics. That sounds like a preferential option for the poor, at least the poor it, it, it put from the standpoint of poverty of health. Yes. yes, absolutely. And the other thing we do, and this is something we I'm really excited about, is we dramatically expand uh, something that I was uh, the first member of Congress to actually introduce way back in 1991, something called health savings accounts. So oh, we're going to go. We're going to go from. Uh, uh, 22 million people in health savings accounts uh, today to 85 million people who are going to have. And I think the limits of them accounts. are too small right now. We are going to change the limits on, on health savings accounts, but we're also going to say that any insurance policy that has an actuarial value, and this is, I'm, this is, I know, gobbledygook for a lot of people, but <laughs> that has an actuarial value of 70%. In other words, if you took the money that, that the average person is going to spend on health care, well, this insurance policy will cover 70% of those costs. That's what that means. So if you have a policy that's, that's designed to cover 70% of your cost, 
uh, or, or, or in, in fact, we were debating between 70 and 80. 80 is actually a fairly generous and rich plan. So then you can get a medical a health savings account. Right now, there's you have to you know you have to turn left and then turn right and then you know hold your hand up in the air, dance around three <laughs> times to be able to qualify for one of these plans. Now we're going to make it very simple. We need to take a break right now and come back with more of this on Doctor Doctor of Redeemer Radio. are back today with a special segment with former Senator Rick Santorum. Senator, why have you included in your coalition of people putting this together, the Catholic Medical Association? Well, first off, because they've been engaged. I mean, this, you know, it, we, we go out and, and reach out to lots and lots of organizations and ask them to participate in helping to uh, use their expertise to, to help us craft legislation. And this is something that you know, many, you know, hasn't done, isn't done very often, but this is the approach that I thought we, instead of having Congress craft this bill, let's, let's, let's get all the stakeholders out there across America and invite them in to say, you know, look, uh, you know, You've got a guy, me, who is pretty connected up on Capitol Hill. I'm not getting paid a penny to do this, uh, so I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not anything. I'm just I'm, I'm, a, I'm an agent to try to change things. And so come and talk to us. We got a lot of really smart people or healthcare policy experts, and bring us your ideas. You know, get engaged. Give us your feedback of what we're doing. And a handful of organizations have have decided. You know, we're going to play. We're going to go in there. We're going to we're going to try to make a positive contribution. And thanks be to God, Catholic Medical Association is one of the first that that engaged. Not only did they engage in giving us ideas and giving us feedback, but they were willing to stand with us and say, you know, we support this. This is something that that uh, that Congress should take a look at. So on every aspect of of where we needed help in in formulating, in responding, and then in promoting, uh, the CMA has done a great job. Well, we really appreciate you helping to bring us to the table. I know that's the Catholic faith is one of the things we share together, having just come to Mass uh, before this interview. And so one one of the things, you know, you were identifying is giving the money back to the states, kind of creating these laboratories so that states can experiment. One of the things I've heard thrown around is the health care choices proposal. What do you hope to come of that in the future? You know, it's... This is a very live issue right now because we're here in the state of Texas, and the state of Texas, thank you know, God bless Texas, as they say down here. Uh, they they sued the federal government. They sued the Secretary of Health. It's uh, Texas versus Azar. Azar is the Secretary of Health, and they sued the Secretary of Health uh, to say that uh, Obamacare is unconstitutional uh, because the tax that Justice Roberts said was the reason that it was constitutional is gone, and because the Congress repealed it. And so now there's no reason for this for this mandate and for this bill to uh, uh, this law to to pass constitutional structure uh, scrutiny. Uh, there's a chance that the district court judge here in Dallas. So we're at the epicenter of all this. Uh, actually, Fort Worth, just the people in Fort Worth don't like being called Dallas. Um, but right right next to us uh, is is going to rule shortly. Uh, and the belief is that he may invalidate the entire law. And if that happens, all of a sudden people are going to panic. Because all of these insurance regulations, all of this money, everything just goes out the door. And, and so Congress is going to have to do something to act. And so what we're saying is, look, uh, you know, I know members of Congress, you're, you're nervous Nellies. You don't like to talk about health care because most of them don't know what the heck they're talking about. Uh, and, and, and so they don't want to have to go out and, and, and talk health care in the middle of a campaign. But you may not have a choice. This, may, this issue may get forced on you and may get forced on you very quickly. I can tell you that over half the ads the Democrats are running in this election cycle are on health care. And almost none of the ads Republicans are running are on health care. And if this thing comes up and bites the Republicans, and if they don't have a plan, and if they don't have a course of action to say, oh, no, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to cover people, and here's how we're going to make sure that this is a better system. In fact, we just had a study uh, commissioned that, that actually shows that coverages are going to go up and that costs are going to go down and, uh, and, and, and uh, provider uh, efficiency goes up. I mean, there's all sorts of good things that this bill will do. And all we'd have to do now is convince members of Congress to have the courage to do it. Oh, courage, one of the four cardinal virtues. 
in your healthcare choices proposal, what are the choices you refer to? Well, I mentioned one of them that, you know, if we, we put the money out to the states, we tell the states they have to uh, use that money to, uh, to establish a viable private sector plan, a, a private sector insurance market, and then uh, support lower income people to whatever means they want. The, cho the choice is number one to the state on how they design the system, so that's the first choice. But the second choice is, is that we give individuals the ability to have a, a number of choices of private insurance. Uh, there will be the Obamacare exchange market, okay? The states will now you know, have some sort of marketplace uh, 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 in, in place, but there's also something uh, that, again, another one of these terms of art called short-term limited duration plans. These are plans that President, President Trump uh, liberalized to allow for a second marketplace where people could go out and get insurance, something called short-term limited duration plans. Uh, they, they come without any or very few government restrictions, unlike the federal plans, which are heavily prescribed. And so now people have a choice be and, and be able to get support from the state to buy either these more tailored plans that are called short-term limited duration plans, or uh, something that that is dictated through through the uh, through the Obamacare law. So that that's a choice. The choice that I mentioned before that if you if the state decides to to uh, develop a state plan, people will have the choice to get out of that state plan. So every individual who is in the individual market is not covered by an employer plan will have some help and some support and some choice to get the plan that they want. Well, and I understand that there's a way that you're working through that this can be financed in a way that it's even pro-life, which has been one of the big concerns with Obamacare. Well, here's, the, yeah, the beauty of that is that the money that the states are going to get goes through a program called the CHIP program, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program. The Children's Health Insurance Program has been on the books for many years, and in that program, there is a provision that says none of this money can be used for abortion. And we are going to block grant the money to the state through that program so it will have pro-life protections. So when the state gives money to an individual to help them purchase a, a, who doesn't have employer-provided coverage, it, to, to help them buy a plan, that plan can't have any abortion coverage. And wow. so you say, well, uh, how about other plans that don't have subsidized? Well, yeah, but you're not gonna, if, if, if the vast majority of the people in your marketplace can't buy a plan that has a that has abortion coverage insurance companies aren't going to cover abortion they're just not because they're not going to offer plans that very few people are going to take man i love that talk about a way to make even the health insurance marketplace more pro-life this is a this is an incredibly pro-life bill because right now you have uh all these people who are uh, you know in in these obamacare policies that all have you know require abortion coverage those are all gone Wow. You know, you, you spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill. You had mentioned several of the people you work with. It didn't make it into the media, but last year you guys made a lot of strides. What, what are the chances moving forward with this? I think they're actually very good. I mean, I think the, the uh, uh, as strange as this may seem, I think the timing may be right, uh, not, probably not before the election, but maybe right after the election uh, in what's called a lame duck session of the Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in some respects, you know, the election may uh, may force people to say, look, if we don't do something now, for example, if we lose the House, if the Republicans lose the House of Representatives, uh, that if if nothing is done now, the chances of Obamacare being repealed and uh, and and or, or improved in any any substantial way are gone. And so uh, there might be a chance after the election uh, to have the majority that we will still have till the end of the year and actually pass this bill. And I think the key has always been getting the votes in the United States Senate. And I think, you know, sadly, we lost John McCain, but that means, but he was replaced by someone who is strongly in favor of the Health Care Choices Act. And so uh, we now are down to really two or three votes that we have to, we have to focus on instead, instead of three or four. Is there anything people listening to this can do? Because the average American feels helpless in the face of this. Yeah, I, if, first off, uh, I always encourage people to, uh, to you know, talk to their senators and, 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 and representatives. 
in this case, really, it's it's really focused more on the Senate is uh, and it's candidly more focused on Republican senators. If you have a Republican senator as your senator is to make sure you contact them and and ask them about the Health Care Choices Act. Uh, it's healthreform2018.com is the uh, is the website. And so you can go on there and learn all about it. You can go on heritage heritage.org, which is the Heritage Foundation website. Uh, they have uh, lots of information about it. So there's uh, there's lots of places you can go to learn about the Healthcare Choices Act. My guess is if you just Google Healthcare Choices Act, you could learn lots of they have links to uh, to these sites. So uh, it is it really is the o I, I'm just gonna be honest, it's the only thing out there. There is no other plan. You know, Paul Ryan doesn't have another plan. Mitch McConnell doesn't have another plan. The president doesn't have. In fact, all of the president's people are now working on our plan. Oh, really? So, so this is this is yes. The we we have lots and lots of folks in the administration now in their policy shops who are you know very concerned about what this Texas VAZAR suit could be, and they want to make sure they're not caught with their with their proverbial pants around their ankles, <laughs> uh, and and find that they you know that that uh, Obamacare is gone and there's nothing on the books uh, to uh, uh, to deal with this problem. Is there any final words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Pray, pray. I mean, we need lots of prayer, and uh, this is the. Uh, just from a very practical point of view, I can easily see how this could pass. I mean, people say, you're insane. How can you easily see? I can actually easily see how it could pass, but it's just people need courage. And so pray for the virtue of courage uh, to and, and wisdom to be able to see, you know, the, the good that can come. And because if we don't do this, and this is the beauty of this, if this goes into effect, and all the money Washington is spending goes out to the states, and the states have to divide, de, de, devise their own system of how they're going to provide health care for those who are not in the employer-covered world. And here's the beauty of this. Once a state does that, once they sit down and collaboratively work together, Republicans and Democrats in most places, and figure out a system that's going to work for them under you know, under restrictions. We don't let the states do everything, anything they want. We, we want to make sure this is a private plan. But once they put that in place, for Bernie Sanders or somebody else to come along and say, hey, we're going to take that money away from you, and we're going to do this big system here in Washington. We've got it figured out. I think California's going to, wait a minute, we're getting all this money. I mean, it's a lot of money. California's going to get like $40, 50000000000 billion a year. Uh, and they're going to say, no, no, well, yeah, we'll give you that money back. Yeah, you go ahead and design. No, they're not going to do that. We kill single-payer government-run, federal government-run health care in its tracks if this passes. So there's, there's a lot of good things that can happen here. And that's using a beautiful Catholic principle called subsidiarity. subsidiarity. It's the bottom line. I mean, I, I wrote a book many, many years ago uh, uh, called uh, It Takes a Family. Uh, in response to Hillary Clinton's book called It Takes a Village. A village yes. so I wrote It Takes a Family, and and uh, I've spent a whole chapter on that book titled Subsidiarity. And, and, and one of the core principles that I talked about, uh, one of the core issues that I talked about with the principle of subsidiarity was health care, and that, you know, subsidiarity is, is ultimately means patient-doctor-patient -patient relationship. That's the ultimate uh, where, where, where the most good can be done, and uh, we hope to get, the, get back to that. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Dr. Dr. Senator Santorum, and we'll be back with more of the show after the break. We are back with the last segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with, you guessed it, the answer to today's medical trivia question. The trivia question is, again, like the last show, in the category of physician marriages. But this is just one question, multiple choice. According to the 2013 publication about physician marriages in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, what percent of physicians spend, on average, less than an hour and a half per day awake with their spouse? Andrew, what was your initial impression before initial, you looked at the answer? My initial impression was... The, the biggest foil is 80%. Isn't there a number higher than that? <laughs> there you are know? numbers higher, but not in the choices. No, the choices were 20, 35, 50, 65, and 80%. I, my, my initial reaction was that probably most physicians don't get to spend as much time with their spouse, even 90 minutes. Well, the good news then for Andrew is that half of physicians spend less and half of 
physicians on average spend more than 90 minutes a day. But then if you go to that other half, a quarter of them spend 45 to 90 minutes per day and a, qu a quarter spend less than 45 minutes a day. And a sad 9% spend less than 20 minutes per day awake with their spouse. Yeah, it is it is pretty sad and uh I think I think most people I know my my wife would definitely uh talk about that just that there's sometimes and a lot of times it's out of your control, you know, when you you have another admission at the hospital, there's not an option uh there's not an option for that. Even even tonight we're recording this, I got a text, I got to go to the hospital. So whatever plans were going to happen, they're gone. And so it's it's a huge sacrifice on the behalf of physician spouse. I know it's uh my my wife definitely sacrifices a lot and I appreciate it so that we can provide care to patients. And yet in this study, it said that and this study was unique because it asked questions of physician spouses. It didn't ask questions of physicians about marriage. Yeah. 81% of physician spouses said they would marry a doctor over again knowing what they know now. Well, <laughs> I, I think my wife would still say she'd marry me again, but I, I think it's it's something for people who are not, they, they have not had experience before. It is a, a different life of unpredictability, which as long, I've always thought that as long as you keep the focus on trying to help other people and thinking of it as a vocation rather than a job, if it's a job, it's really not a very good job. No, uh, not at all. But as a vocation, it, it is a blessing. And I think hopefully for me and, and for our listeners out there, hopefully a path to heaven. Amen. And on that note, we're going to go to a new segment that we're experimenting with. This was Andrew's idea. I'll let him introduce it to you. Yes, we have got a new segment, and, and I'm still trying to toy around with the best name for it, but it's going to be something about navigating healthcare or the healthcare mess. Because um, there's so many people, they talk about health literacy, which basically means, you know, understanding what is going on with your healthcare more than the disease. Doctors are pretty good and explaining diseases to people and medicines to take or surgeries they need. But what happens when you need to see a doctor, when you need to schedule an appointment, if you need to get lab work done, who orders it, where does it go? You get a bill back, but then you get this other thing called an EOB that's not a bill. And my old insurance covered this, but my new one won't. And why can I not afford my medicine, but I know the person next door on Medicaid gets it for free? This doesn't make sense. The system's broken. And so I agree. There's a lot of things out there that need to change. Uh, I've got hope for the future, but in the meantime, I think one of the biggest things to do is just identify these things, and hopefully if we can break them down a little bit and explain it to our listeners, then I think that will make you guys even more effective advocates for change in the public sphere. Because this stuff gets debated around in D.C. and down in Indy all the time. In doctor's lounges. Doctor's <laughs> lounges, mostly complaining. You know, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of traction, unfortunately. But I think there's getting to be more, and most certainly there will have to be more for sustainability. But my goal with introducing this segment is to hopefully just introduce some of these ideas and lead to questions and hopefully a little bit of understanding. So today, just to kind of get this off to the races, the, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about was how we got here. Maybe a 30,000 foot view, if you're flying an airplane, looking down at an island, what would you see when you're looking at this healthcare mess? It probably wouldn't look as messy from a 30,000 foot view, but it, it at least explains a little bit. Well, talking to many of my patients who are women, when I ask them what they would be doing if they weren't having surgery, uh, most of them say they'd be at home cleaning. And when I ask, well, who made the mess? Well, it usually wasn't them. It was usually some men. So <laughs> I suspect some men made a big mess sometime back that's just multiplying now. You know, it's funny. I think really there's there's been a pivotal change in healthcare really in the last 100 years is what we're looking at. And even yesterday I was talking and really lamenting with one of the patients that I was seeing that things are so complicated and they're so unpredictable. You don't know how much it's going to cost till afterwards, and you don't know if the insurance is going to pay for it or not. You know, and so looking primarily at insurance, you know, his question was, why can't we just go back to bartering? This is a cash price. If a patient can't afford it, maybe you change 
some chickens, you know, for, for an office visit, or they can help you on their car and you can help them with this knee surgery, that type of thing, kind of the way it used to be maybe a hundred years ago where I things were simpler. I love the bartering concept. Honestly, I, I could get right on board with that <laughs> I- immediately. It would make things a lot easier. But unfortunately, it started that way, but then came the insurance companies. And a little bit of history there, the Blues, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, were kind of the first, one of the first big ideas of insurance. Blue Cross, 1929, started in Dallas, Texas, for teachers. And the, the program was for $6 a year. If you needed to go to the hospital, 21 days of hospital care were covered for free if you paid $6 a year. Now, gee whiz, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, even accounting for inflation. That, <laughs> and it's pretty simple. You go to the hospital, of course, everything's covered. You pay your $6. I, easy enough, I can understand it. And this was not tied to employment. And it was not. No, people just elected. It, it started uh, targeting these teachers, and Blue Shield started actually in the Pacific Northwest for lumber and mining camps in 1939. And there's a monthly fee to cover your health care, and it was run by doctors, by the doctors there. You know, So if you needed to come to the clinic, kind of like a, an idea of direct primary care that we see reemerging, I hope to talk about in a future ah, segment. So what's new is old. Everything comes around. People who read history are rarely surprised, you know. And so the the Blue Cross and Blue Shield merged actually in 1982, and then in 1994 they became for-profit um, affiliates. And so that's where you see the insurance companies. If you look at a list of the most profitable or the highest revenue generating companies in the state, frequently they're insurance companies if there's one home there. And so it, initially they were not necessarily for profit, um, and they were surrounded, they were run by doctors and really designed for that hospital, for that community, and now things have changed. When there's profits involved, the goal is to make money rather than to facilitate paying for health care. Um, uh, did prices go up when they became for profit? You know? Or did the benefits go down? 1994, there's a lot of things changing. You know, those yes. were the Clinton years. Yes. And we saw a lot of changes to health care. You know, a couple a couple things like that, we were talking about government, Medicare and Medicaid. There's a, a huge shift, changing idea from a private enterprise company effectively working to, to provide health care for folks to now a new entitlement where it's the government is taking on this job and granting a new right, I use that term loosely, because rights are supposed to be given by God and protected by government. The government's creating a new so-called right for people to health care. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson created Medicare and Medicaid for folks, Medicaid for, for folks that are poor and couldn't afford it, and then for Medicare, folks who are 65 years or older, or if they're on disability for more than two years, you can get Medicare. What Tom, do you think was the average life expectancy in 1965? In 1965, I know that was when they started Social Security in the late 30s. It was uh, under 65. So I'm going to guess 67. You're pretty good, Tom. You're, you are a smart guy. The, the average life expectancy back then when they started this was 66.8 for men and 73.7 for women. Obviously, I was guessing the, the men's lifespan. <laughs> yeah. So that's that. If you think about this, Medicare was going to kick in at sixty-five. Guys were only supposed to live to sixty-seven. You know, most people didn't necessarily get Medicare. Or if you did, it was for a year or two. Yes. Life expectancy. And women got it for a couple years? of years. Yeah, and frequently widowed. You know, so they they were going to end up requiring some charitable care potentially at that time as well. And so back then it was supposed to be a very small group of people who got it. Now life expectancy for men, depending where you look, is somewhere around 76 years old. And for women, it's about 81 years old in America in 2018. So now 65, 75 years old, 80 years old, people are taking this, this benefit for much longer. And that goes along with a decreasing fertility rate. A fertility rate is the number of children that each woman gives birth to at a certain time. In 1965, it was 2.91, almost three kids per lady. Now, in 2018, it's 1.84. 
we've got a falling number of young folks paying for an increasing larger number of old folks who live to longer ages. So this is not sustainable. It's really not. And, you know, they maybe should have seen this coming. The fertility rate was likely a product of the invention of birth control and its widespread use. But now we are in a pickle because healthcare costs are 26% of our government budget. So at every dollar that the IRS puts to use, a quarter of it goes to Medicare or Medicaid. Okay, so that is a huge amount. And so this just kind of laying a, a groundwork for future discussions about maybe how we got into this mess. Boy, those are some great questions because oftentimes people rail against these things, but it's good to know where did they come from, why did they start, and what are the unintended consequences. Hopefully how we can fix them. And how we can fix them. Oh, very, very impressive. I like this new segment idea. Well, thank you, our listeners, for paying attention to us again on another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like to read, learn more about the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening to another episode. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Thank you for listening, and please remember that your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so choose wisely and choose Catholic. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Email your questions and suggestions to doctor at RedeemerRadio.com or just fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Remember, you can find information about all the good work of the Catholic Medical Association at cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot org. Dr. Doctor is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You can help support the show at RedeemerRadio.com slash donate.